0: Welcome to Snap Judgment, the show about the decisions people make that change everything. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and what's that? Who's it? What's it? Hit it now. That's right, on the ones and twos, DJ Smooth Grooves on today's Snap Judgment episode. Thank you very much, DJ Smooth Grooves. Now, you may have heard the Snap Judgment before. Maybe you have not heard it. Oftentimes, we take you right to the edge of the diving board. We put you right on the top of the mountain. Today, today, we take you somewhere special. Because oftentimes, the enemy, the danger, is out there. But sometimes, every once in a while, we are our own worst enemy. And sometimes, that danger within... Becomes the danger everywhere. Today's Snap Judgment episode 5150 Danger to Self. We're going to kick it off with Snap Judgment's own senior producer, Roman Mars, as he goes into one of the biggest psychiatric wings in the entire country.
1: So I'm in the frantic front entrance to the emergency room of San Francisco General Hospital. Warning bells going off. I nearly get taken out by a gurney slamming through the double doors. And Dr. Paul Lindy is recounting the scores of crazy stories. Literally crazy stories that he has gathered as an ER psychiatrist. The schizophrenic homeless drunks who are ripe with bacteria. The smells are unbelievable. Stench foot. The fakers trying to get committed to avoid going to jail. You kind of get a sense that they're doing it for what we call secondary gain. And then he tells me about Sal Paletti. Mr. Paletti was not that imposing physically, but he was intense. He didn't talk. He had the Mets cap pulled down over his eyes. And right away, Dr. Lindy knew that this guy was off he was very very agitated when
2: he came in my office and i'd never seen this before but he literally didn't say a word to me and he was he was up and around my office tapping on the walls all over kind of systematically tapping on the walls and i just you know i thought rather than say what you know what are you doing i just sat down and watched him because he wasn't doing much of anything else and then finally you know he went all around my office and tapped all around and then he was sort of hyperventilating and I didn't know what to do, and, you know, this went on for, for several minutes. And it didn't take long when I started talking to him, Said so the reason that he was there is that his doctor thought he should be evaluated because he was thinking about killing his boss. He had had an elaborate plan to do so, and it was to use explosives. This was pre-internet days. He'd gone to the library and figured out how to make a car bomb. And he was going to do a radio-controlled car bomb. It was pretty chilling stuff. Four parts sugar, six per potassium
1: nitrate, mixed together with the and a ratio of
2: 75%. And I said, Well, you know, I started to explore with them. Do you know what the consequences are if, if you get caught? And he said, Well, of course. I go to jail, you know, or I go to prison. And he said, if I went to prison, I would commit suicide. Oops. You better come this way. And then he said, Now wait a second. If I get caught, the only other person who knows about this right now is you. So that means I might have to take you with me. And they proceeded to tell me all about his plans and who he was planning to kill. And then I had to decide whether to perform a Terasoff warning. Terasoff warning.
1: A Terasoff warning is unfortunately named after Tatiana Terasoff, a woman who was actually a UC Berkeley student. Well, in 1968, she met an Indian man named Prozenjeet Podar, and they became friends and dated a little bit. He wanted a more intimate relationship with Tatiana, but when she refused, he began to resent her, stalk her, and eventually, he had a complete emotional breakdown and sought psychological counseling. While in therapy, he admitted to his psychologist that he wanted to kill Tatiana Tarasov. His doctor had the police detain Podar, stating that in his opinion, Podar was suffering from severe paranoid schizophrenia and recommended that he be committed as a dangerous person. Podar's condition seemed to improve, and he was later released, and he stopped seeing his psychologist. But here's the thing. Even though the police were brought in, no one warned Tatiana Tarasov or her family. At that time, confidentiality was such that you couldn't break it. Tatiana was away in South America for a while, and while she was gone, her stalker became friends with her brother and moved in with him. The brother knew nothing about any of this. And after she got back from her summer vacation, Prozenjeet Podar stabbed Tatiana Tarasov to death with a kitchen knife. A civil lawsuit followed, and the Supreme Court decided that mental health professionals are obligated to warn not just the police, but also potential victims if they believe a patient will carry out their threat.
2: So since then, we're now more or less obligated to contact an intended victim if someone says they're planning to
1: kill someone else. So I had a real life, real time example of this. Now ER psychiatrists use the word "terrasoff" as a verb. It means to warn a potential victim that some crazy guy has threatened to kill them. Whether or not to take these threats seriously is up to the psychologist. And for Dr. Paul Lindy at SF General, he had to decide if this twitchy, wall-knocking, would-be car bomber would actually go through with blowing up his boss.
2: I elected to not do it. Um, I think nowadays I probably would do it. Um, But I elected not to do it because I thought I would drive him away and he wouldn't come back. Mr. Pelletti's boss never knew what could have happened to him. Got him on some medications. He agreed to go to a group. He agreed to come back and see me. He agreed to get rid of all of his stuff, his bomb-making materials and everything. And, and he had calmed down considerably by then, um, so I wasn't that worried. And so I end up, you know, had him leave my office and had him come back early next, the week after. And then I get advice from three different psychiatrists because I was freaked out about the case and basically got sort of three different
1: opinions. Here's an old joke. The only way you can get two psychologists to agree is to agree that the third one is wrong. So he came back the next week,
2: and um, he had done what he said he was going to do. He looked a lot better. He'd gotten rid of his stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. So he got, got rid of his materials. How was... Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I figure if he was going to try to pull the wool over my eyes, he just wouldn't have come back. And I, that, I might that's making an assumption, but, you know. Um, and it's funny, I think, and maybe I'm over-calling the whole situation, but I think he was relieved that he wasn't actually going to do it. But, yeah, if he wanted to con me and, and mess with me, he certainly he could have. But then he told me what he was doing when he was tapping the walls. And he said when he was planning to come in the office, he was planning to trash the office. So he was planning to punch in all my walls, um, and he was looking to see where the studs were so he could punch the sheetrock in between the studs. So. so
1: he wouldn't hurt his hand.
2: So he wouldn't hurt his hand.
1: Has that ever come up after? I mean, is that a really rare thing in your line? No,
2: I'm, I would venture to say um, we probably do three or four a week in psych emergency, at least. Do a tear us off warning three or four times a week? Yeah, I, mean, I don't personally do that many, but... I'm sure it's a few a week, so it's not that rare. Yeah, yeah People are out there who are you know, threatening to kill other people, so,
1: um, yeah. Who, who makes those phone calls?
2: What, what, do, you, what do you say? Well, it's you, it's the nurse or the psychiatrist, depending, you'll actually make the call, and I've made a handful of these calls where you're calling someone to say, yeah, this is Dr. Lindy from San Francisco General Hospital, I'm calling from Psych Emergency, and are you Mr. So-and-so, yes. Well, I'm calling to let you know that, you know, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so has had thoughts of killing you and how they would do it. It's amazing how often that they, honest to God, even laugh and say, he's threatened to kill me 50 times and he hasn't done it yet. It's unusual where it's like they had no idea. And wouldn't that be creepy to be on the other end of that phone call, right?
0: One type of phone call you don't want to pick up. Here's another. The phones are ringing off the hook. The board is lit up. The DJ just played that new hit. Dana's in the booth of a big commercial radio station. She runs the night show all alone, keeping thousands of people company deep into the night, spinning records.
3: Well, That's what, you know, we want people to think, but... (laughs) Right.
0: The computer was spinning records. Exactly. (laughs) And you got a phone call.
3: Yeah, I had pretty much just started my shift, so I'm getting everything together, and I get this phone call, and it's this guy uh, who wanted to know what a song was that was played maybe five hours ago, not during my shift. He's describing a song so vaguely... You know that song, and it's got like a girl, and they're like la la. And you're like, yeah, oh, that song. And I just said, you know what? It's not easy for me to just go figure that out. And I'm I'm live here right now. I'm working, you know, running the commercials. And his response was, oh, 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 I I I, re- I didn't mean to bother you. I'm I'm oh, I'm sorry, and sounded hurt and lonely and sad, and I can't let somebody have their feelings hurt. Then I said, call me back later, and I'll see if I can figure it out. And that was my mistake.
0: He called you back later?
3: hmm And I told him what the song was, and his level of gratitude was over the top. Like, thank you so much. Oh, you're an angel. You didn't have to do that for me. Clearly no one does anything nice for this person.
0: What was the song?
3: It was uh, Maroon 5, She Will Be Loved.
0: Beautiful. He called you up to ask you for that song.
3: Right. She
4: had some trouble with herself. He was always
3: there to help her. She always belonged to someone else. After that, I became his new favorite person, and then he started calling me every day. Sometimes it would be once a night, maybe twice a night. Sometimes it would be 20 times a night. I could tell this was a guy who was definitely in his 60s, had way too much time on his hands. I knew that he was off and lonely. His family pretty much had, they'd written him off. And he would call and say, like, don't ever have a kid because they'll break your heart. And he was crying.
0: Just like all radio stations, Dana's station puts on events, record releases, concerts, giveaways. At one event, her caller thinks she's going to make an appearance. So he shows up.
3: So the guy shows up at the event, wanders around, and then asks where I am. And the DJ said, She's not here. And then he handed him a bag and gripped his hand and said, Guard this with your life and give it to Dana.
0: The station manager opened the package before Dana got it because he knew. He knew something was not right. It may as well have been ticking in this tightly wrapped package. It was a strange assortment, a card with a handwritten poem about the Lord. There was a, a crocheted sweater, a tiny pair of hand-knit bright pink baby boots, and a book.
3: The a book about that actress, Rebecca Schaefer, who was killed by a stalker.
0: Whoa. Now, I don't know, Dana, about yourself, but that would scare the hell out of me.
3: That's when I realized that this guy was not just some harmless listener. That's when I really knew he was crazy.
0: So Dana calls the cops and they pay the guy a visit at home. They are blunt and they tell him how things are going to be from now
3: on. And said, You're coming off like a crazy stalker and you're scaring her. And then he called the overnight person and said, This is my last phone call. I won't ever call again, but she's still my angel. So that, that was the end of it. Once he backed off, I kind of, I mean, after a while, I kind of forgot about him.
0: No phone calls. Everything's cool. Back to normal. Yeah. A sense of calm returns. Dana doesn't hear from him for months. But then one night, the phone ring. No, it cannot be. It can't be. No, 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 no. Not anymore. Not him. Uh Uh-uh. I don't think you want to turn the dial just yet. Stay tuned for the conclusion to Voice in the Sky. I'm Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Like a snap judgment, storytelling with a beat. When we left off, Dana had not received any strange calls or packages for months. And then one night, he calls.
3: It it was just kind of out of the blue. And it was just like, here we go again. Like this run, he was on one. It was crazy. I mean, he would call all day long. He, he just got more and more insane. Everything had hidden meaning, just between he and I. So he thought I was speaking to him. Through the song, it could be Natalie Merchant, but to him, that was me telling him something. He would say things sometimes like, "You are sending me messages." The voice in the sky. I'm this genius, and I'm running this airplane, 747. Meet me on the Golden Gate Bridge at midnight. I'm just calling to tell you you're a genius. Mensa held the angel that I got the message. One night he called and said he loved the song that I played at four o'clock in the morning Thank when you I wasn't you're there. An angel. I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse. Weird poems and. News Everything was a sign.
0: Why in the world did you not just hang up on this guy every single time he
3: called? Because I have no boundaries and felt bad for him.
0: How did the situation change?
3: It was suggested that a restraining order has to happen.
0: So, the restraining order goes through. The guy can no longer call Dana. He can no longer write to Dana. He is ordered to turn in any weapons potentially trained on Dana. The only thing he can do to Dana is listen to her on the radio.
3: And I was told, you know, now if he contacts you, it's over. He goes to jail. And so he started writing me anonymous postcards.
0: Uh Uh-uh. That is not how this works. You can't just go around the restraining order. So... The cops check out the case again just to see.
3: The police went through the case and they were like, wait, he never turned over over firearms. And so they went to his house and sure enough, he had about six guns.
0: Six guns? Six? Six guns! The guy has six weapons. He is a personal army of one.
3: And uh, they removed the guns and took him to jail.
0: The guy goes to jail. Finally, Finally, he's locked up. Dana is safe. Friends, family, even Dana herself is starting to breathe that first sigh of relief.
3: And I was at work. A detective called me and said, I just want to let you know he bailed out. That's right. This
0: guy, a danger to himself and others, is out on bail. He's a
3: free man.
0: There's only one thing going through
3: Dana's mind. Now we've made him angry. Now we've made him angry. And he's going to come for me. And he's going to come for me. For those two weeks when I knew he was out of jail, we were waiting on his trial. I mean, I that was the scariest time in my life. I'd be at the grocery store. If the checkout person asked me a question or I had to speak, I would, you know, kind of whisper it or be like, don't talk to me.
0: This professional radio DJ who makes her living Sending her voice out into the world is afraid to speak in public for fear.
3: Because he could be there and hear me and know who I was, and I wouldn't know who he was.
0: Two weeks. Dana has to wait for two weeks until the guy goes to trial. Two weeks alone, the question, is it better to be at work where he can hear you? Or home, alone, where no one can?
3: And the night before the trial, I fell asleep when the sun came up. And within, like, two hours, I'm woken up by my door sounding like it's about to be kicked in. And there was this, I mean, sirens and chaos noise outside my house. My My doorbell was being rang, like, off the hook. It was crazy. And I opened the door, and there's two cops standing there. And they, they asked, they're like, are you Dana? You know, and I said yeah? And they were like okay, 10 you know, and they were doing their whole cop thing, talking on the walkie talkie to someone else going, yeah, we're looking at her right now. Yeah, she seems to be fine. And then they're like, is there anyone else in the house? Blink once for yes. And they go, do you know why we're here? And I said no. And then they were like, do you know that the detective has been calling you all morning? And, and I said no, because my ringer's off. And I'm just sitting there going, what? Is your What is going on? And then he just went, I just need to be the one to tell you this, that it's over. His trial was today, and he didn't show up because he killed himself. He blew his head off. I had to sit on the floor. At first, I felt relief. And then I felt sad. Why? I guess because, like, this person was so incredibly depressed. And even though I know it's not my fault, still, it was because of me. And I think about what I meant to this guy and to his life. As much as I was going, okay, this guy just comes into my life and brings all this insanity, by the same token, me accidentally coming into his life had ruined it too.
0: You're listening to Snap Judgment. Big thanks to Dana for sharing her story with us here. If you have a story to share, let us know. Snapjudgment.org Facebook, Twitter, all that. Let us know. Snap judgment. Now, up next, we've got a guy, a guy I met, a guy I like. And he was telling me a story, and I thought, Justin, what the hell is wrong with you? Justin McClure is running as fast as he can. He's in a jail work furlough release program. During the day, he goes to work. At night, they lock him up in jail. 7 a.m., they let him out. And until 7 p.m., he's free to work and keep his old job. Thing is, his employer doesn't know that. If he shows up late for work and the bosses find out about his incarceration, he's fired. If he's late getting back to jail at night, his work release program ends and he goes to prison. Right now, quick in a hurry for two years. Work is five miles away from jail.
5: And Justin, Justin doesn't have a car. I had to run five miles each direction in half an hour. That's six-minute miles. So for three months, I ran to and from work every day, 10 miles a day. Be late once, life is over. So Justin, run. Run, run, run. How did it come to this? The truth is, Justin has always been running. I have one gear in life.
0: Always been running fast. Everything he does is fast. His people
5: north georgia hills people they talk fast hey man how you guys do over there? what you guys want we go fish what's going on hey you doing? we doing honor that's southern my friends
0: and there's being from the south barbecue shiny f-150s the cnn headquarters and then there's being from the south
5: my family was in the movie deliverance my great uncle his name was gizzard And he was a professional squirrel hunter. Like, I don't know how many squirrels you got to kill to be professional, but he did it. At 16 years of age, Justin meets a girl. The girl. And we fell in love. We courted through high school, and then um, we got married when I was uh, 20 and she was 18. I knew that she would stay with me no matter what. Fast forward, poor country kid moves to California. Besides a life in the fast lane... It's a lot more fun than having a wife. I thought that I was in control of this relationship. I didn't care what she went through, but I had to do what I had to do. Well, she thinks a little bit differently and divorces it. You know what? When a woman decides to leave you, she decides to leave you. She is gone. Because once I found out we were getting divorced, I just went crazy. I looked at the wall all day. I stared at the clock. I didn't know what to do. So instead of doing that, I just drank... And I did a lot of drugs because I was so devastated. Drugs, alcohol, and women. Lots and lots of women. I've been with one woman my whole life. i never experienced any other woman. There was one time where my friends counted. It was 40 nights in a row where I drank until 2 o'clock in the morning. And I brought somebody different home every night. I was running from what I was going through because I was out of my head. The day before my 28th birthday, I got my first DUI. DUI. First DUI.
0: Ever. You're 28 years old. 28 years old. Okay. Okay, cool. Everybody makes mistakes. What happens next?
5: I was out drinking and driving the next night. I got another DUI a week and a half later. And even that was not enough for me. About the next week, I was out at a bar, and I was uh, really, really drunk. I got into a little fight with a guy over a pack of cigarettes. I don't even smoke. I don't know how that happened. My friend came over and she's like, Justin, what's wrong with you?" I was visibly freaking out on the sidewalk. I was having a panic attack. They took me to the emergency room. I was screaming at people. They asked me if I felt I was a threat to myself. And I, and I said, hell yeah, I'm a threat to myself. I just got two DUIs. The, the love of my life is leaving me. I just got into a fight. How was your day? Next thing I know, my feet are shackled, my hands are shackled. Somebody is putting straps across me. They took me to uh, a mental ward. I was fifty-one, fifty. I did not think I belonged there. I, I wanted to get my wife back. I didn't want to have these DUIs. I didn't want to have uh, these bad thoughts that I had in my head. And I didn't care what you had to say to me. I didn't want to be there. Everybody else seemed to have a story of uh, there was grace involved and there was, there was an attempt or there was hope. All, all I had was um, a, a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness because why is this happening to me? They let Justin out after a few days. But even his stint in the psych ward
0: doesn't stop him.
5: I thought I was impervious, still. Because when I got out, I still proceeded to drink. I still proceeded to live a very wild lifestyle. I met some guy I didn't even know, and he had cocaine. And I remember I was so out of my head that I I did cocaine off the Bible.
0: Two months go by. Justin's still out there partying. And one night, he leaves the bar. It's 1 a.m. He gets on the freeway. And he hears a siren, sees the lights in his rearview mirror.
5: When the lights came on behind me, every moment of that was just an eternity. My heart started beating really fast, and I knew that something bad was about to happen. I knew that I was not getting out of this. I pulled over and I just, I start crying. I start crying. Officer pulls me over and uh, <laughs> he asked for my license, and I said, Officer, um, I know it's about to happen right now. Um, I can give you my license, but I, I can also tell you that I've got two DUIs, and I know what you're about to do right now. Um, he said, get out of the car. And he, he knew that I'd been drinking already, and I was bawling. And I told the officer, I said, uh, look, at my, look in my eyes. Do, do, do you see right now what I'm going through? Can you tell? He didn't care. He had a job to do. And his job was to put me away. In that moment, I realized that my life was going to be very bad for quite a long time after that point. Justin gets his third DUI in six months. He goes to see a lawyer. I was just like, how much money do you need to get me out of this? He's like, Justin, you're not going to get out of this. And that was the first time in my life where I was like, huh, maybe the problem in life is you. Justin, maybe the problem in life is the priorities and, th- and the decisions that you've made. Um, I was looking at a year. I got three months, which was the very minimum. And I could do most of that in a work furlough situation, which means I could keep my job. I had to be at jail at night from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So the rest of the time I could be at work. Now, when I was at work furlough, I was five miles away from where I worked, I couldn't drive. So for three months, I ran to and from work every day, 10 miles a day, in a half an hour. Five miles in half an hour, twice a day for three months. Sometimes I would be two miles out and I would have 15 minutes on my clock and I'd be looking at it I'm like, I can't do this. My Achilles is hurting. My knee is hurting. But then, you know, the motivation was you are going to jail, Justin, if you don't make it within 15 minutes. That's a problem. They will shackle me up and take me to the real jail. They don't care about the excuse. I can't tell them that my Achilles hurts or whatever. They don't care.
0: But something happens to Justin when he's running. The landscape races by and for the
5: first time in a long time, Justin's mind is calm. I need to go through what I'm going through and face it like a man. I deserve it. I deserve it. I deserve this pain. Oh, absolutely. I emotionally abused and neglected somebody. I realized and I really really thought that what I had given had come back to me. I needed to go through this and face up to it. No no excuses. Run. This was part of my punishment. Justin made it on time every morning and every night. And he completed his 3 months. I was completely done. And I remember the next week, I entered, to run, I entered a marathon, and it was one of the most difficult ones. It's Big Sur. It's up the, mount, up the hill on the mountain. And when I ran it, I was so happy because I was finally free. I was really still devastated about my ex, but I knew that I was going to start to live a better life from that point on. And I placed 30th out of 8,000.
0: Keep running, Justin. Keep running. Stay healthy. You might not know this about Snap Judgment, but we are often referred to as 30th out of 8,000. Next up, you're I'm so happy about this one. I'm very happy. Snap Judgment's own executive producer, the co-creator of the show, Mark Ristich, has got a story for y'all. And please remove the children. From the room. Get all the kids up out of here that do not want to hear, repeat, or quote this. Step Judgment, Danger to Self, 5150. Stay tuned. listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington and I'm going to get the party started with a story by our own executive producer, Mark Ristich. And I've I've warned you, get them kids away from the radio. Get them impressionable adults away from the radio. Today's episode is about danger to self. And please, please do not try this at home. Mark Ristich, take it away.
6: The closing doors. You're now boarding the ghost train. You know the ghost train in New York City? If you want to go from Brooklyn to Queens, and you don't want to go through Manhattan, you've got to take the ghost train, the G train. Now, if you miss the G train, it's going to be 35 minutes until the next one. Well, it is late at night. I am obliterated, out of my mind after band practice. I run down the stairs, and I see the ghost train just sitting there, doors closed, ready to take off. I call out, appeal. Hey, hey, hey! No sympathy from the ghost conductor. Now, I want to go home bad. And then I think about this guy at work, Mikey Ferrara. He told me about how when he was little, 14 or 15... He and his friends would ride on the outside of the train, on the end car, from station to station. Now, I'm in the middle. I don't have time to get down to the end car. But I look between the cars. There are these stiff steel springs. And I think, I'm pretty athletic. I put one hand on one of the springs, another on the other spring. I put one foot on the bottom spring, and then all of a sudden, the train starts taking off. And I'm skipping along One foot on the platform One foot on the spring Ready to make my move To the middle of the car I'm going to get home Get in my bed And everything's going to be cool And then all of a sudden I hear a voice Hey! I hop back off I look down the platform Is it a cop? No, it's just a guy But the guy Comes up on me Comes up on me fast He's in my face And he says Hey! What do you got a death wish? I'm like No, no, uh, I was going to miss the G-Train. He's like, you missed it already. I said, but it's 35 minutes until the next one. He's like, good, sit there and wait 35 minutes and think about how stupid you are. It only took me 25 minutes to figure out how stupid I was.
4: talking about the ghost train coming down the
0: train. Sunday night, at home. I'm not sitting waiting... But it is in the air. The phone rings. 11.15. It's too late to be anybody else. I pick up the phone. Screaming. Sobs. My oldest and dearest childhood friend. He's shouting and choking on words. I ain't even had nothing to eat, man. They're trying to cut me, man. They're trying to cut me. Where are you? I ain't even had nothing to eat. Tell me where you are. The phone suddenly silent. I look at the call log, 702 area code. He's in Vegas. I get on the plane. In a few hours, I'm on the strip. I do not know this city. I don't have a plan. I'm looking everybody in the face and know it's not going to work. He wouldn't be here. These lights, fountains, these people I know are too much for him. There's Denny's on the strip. I go inside, order a Grand Slam, and... The pretty white lady smiles at me. Excuse me. Crazy question, but I'm not familiar with Las Vegas. If you were homeless here, where would you go? She's real nice. She considers for a moment. I think you should try the library downtown. Then I remember the emails. Rows and rows of the letter G. Threats. Lunatic ravings about the color blue. He's got to be writing them from somewhere. Good luck finding your friend. Good luck. I want to weep. I leave some money and walk back out into the heat. At the library, I check the row of people waiting to use a bay of computers. I ask the librarian if she minds if I look through the reservation logs from the past few days. She says, yeah. Yeah, she does mind, as a matter of fact. But then it doesn't matter. I see him. He's looking shaggy, skinny, but it's him. And we don't do hallmark moments. So I walk over. He says, When'd you get in? I just got here. Yeah? You said you were hungry on the streets. He shakes his head. No, no, I didn't say that. All right, then, well, let's go for a ride. We head back toward the strip. Caesar's flashing lights promise a very special dining experience. So we stop, wind our way through the casino, and tear up the buffet. Shrimp, lobster ribs, this is America. He eats Cheeks bulging Fingernails black We don't look at each other Three years ago He was king of the world A bond trader in Tokyo Then he started hearing the voices I know I have to get him out of here Gotta give him some help Maybe there's some medicine He polishes off the final fork full of prime rib And for the first time Smiles with his eyes. I hit the spot, yo. We leave and walk under the artificially changing indoor sky of Caesar's Palace. So, he says, what brings you to Las Vegas? He's smiling now like old times. Very funny. Your brown behind brings me to Las Vegas. How long you been here? Not long. What's the big secret? Nothing. I think you should come with me back to California. Wish I could. Well, let's go. Wish I could. Well, let's go. I can't. Why can't you? A group of kids fake scream in front of the magic shop. Why can't you come with me? He spasms. His whole right side jerking, spinning him around. He looks at me. Wide-eyed, scared, really really scared, his whole body trembling, and he says because the spirits say so. Hidden spirits jerk his chest up and down like they're playing with a marionette and send him scrambling down the corridor, sprinting away from me. Outside the casino, he's waiting. I know what you're thinking, he says. Then you know I'm thinking that's the scariest I've ever seen in my life. Sometimes, sometimes they have to punish me. All right, look, you're probably just tired. I would be. Maybe if you sleep, the spirits won't notice. I'll just keep driving and we'll be home. His eyes roll back in his head for a moment, but he looks at me. They said no. As we walk down the street... A muscular short man in boxing shoes, boxing shorts, boxing gloves approaches, smiles, chest bumps my friend and extends one of the boxing glove encased hands to me. Nice to meet you. People look at us longer than the boxer appreciates, but look away when he punches in their direction. People need to know who they're dealing with, he says. My friend nods approval. Walking down the strip, I marvel. My friend was always a leader, always had a crew. Even now, battling unseen spirits, he's still magnetic, still pulling a posse. The boxer hangs on his every nonsensical word. My friend, he's rapping now. Staccato, ta, 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 ta. The boxer punctuates his rhymes with lefts, rights, jabs aimed at nobody and me tripping to keep up they find another buffet the boxer grabs a fork in each of his boxing gloves and gobbles at a pace matching my friend they tell me sometimes one of the boxing coaches lets him sleep in the gym overnight otherwise they find a patch of ground somewhere I try again you can both stay with me tonight But I have to go back tomorrow morning. You should come. My friend speaks patiently as if I'm a child. All this, all this, and you don't get it, do you? You still don't get it. I'm Job, and this is my trial. My reward will trump any hardship. Maybe. But maybe your mind's playing tricks on you, man. We go to my hotel room. My friend pulls the hood over his head, curls up on the floor, and closes his eyes. I leave the room and call the police. The man asks me, is he violent? I think about it. In many ways, he's the opposite of violent, childlike. Now, he's not violent. Then... Well, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing they can do. In the morning, I pack my bags to go. I leave him two $20 bills on the dresser. He wakes, watches me, then tears a piece of paper from a hotel pad, writes, folds, hands the paper to me. Everything you need to know is right there. I open up the paper and see squiggles and letters and numbers scribbled on top of each other, gibberish. Man, you sure? He nods, smiles, waves, goodbye. He says, good luck to me. Good luck. I hug him hard this time. Real hard. Real hard. Then I walk away, bag in hand, leaving my best friend in Vegas.
4: As we go along life's way, there'll be blue skies, there'll be gray, but your good times will be mine. Everything's divine. Love.
0: DJ Smooth Grooves, take us on out. My name is Glenn Washington, and Snap Judgment was produced by myself and Uber Producer Mark Ristich, the God of War and Radio Roman Mars and Rebecca Megahertz. Our crew: Rita Daniels, Will Urbina, Ben Precasio, and Sarah Jesse. This episode, fifty-one fifty was inspired by Dr. Paul Lindy's book, Danger to Self, which is available now on the Internet. And at snapjudgment.org, we've got a short film based on this very episode, and you are not going to want to miss it. Podcast, music, pictures, that's what I'm talking about. Leave your own story for us at snapjudgment.org any way you want to. Video, audio, text, share it with us and the world SnapJudgment.org stampjudgment.org is powered by those crazy geniuses at Media Canon. And if you see somebody from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, please take them home and serve them on the good plates. Thank you very much. Many thanks. Don't forget PRX, the public radio exchange. And even though this is not the news, this is NPR. National Public Radio.